going to let God's word speak to us this evening from 1 Samuel chapter 13 as we learn something of the life of Saul and Samuel's interaction with him. 1 Samuel 13, commencing at verse 1 and reading to verse 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with them at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become an offense to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him, they numbered about 600. What's the poorest choice you've ever made? What's the poorest choice you've ever made? If you uh, know the film Anchorman, some of you will know there's a scene where the main character, Ron Burgundy, is running on a hot day and he chooses a, a litre carton of milk as his refreshment and he runs along and he says, milk was a bad choice on that hot day. For me, I was going to ask you to share with your neighbour what your poorest choice would be, but I guess some of you have got some pretty seriously bad uh, poor choices. Um, as always, it's only fair, I'll, I'll share some of mine. 
um, whether you want to hit them or not, really. But um, my first poor choice, I know some of you have heard before, was probably eating a whole tin of condensed mushroom soup uh, about half an hour before I went flying with Stuart um, in his aeroplane. Um, that it's actually impossible to keep condensed mushroom soup in, um, especially if you're over brill, um, as, it, as it happens. Um, some other poorer choices would be on my first day of secondary school, um, not really being bothered to get underwear um, because there wasn't any in my drawer, bear with it. Um, I'm forgetting that there was a rugby match where I'd have to get changed and the rest of the class thinking that I was some kind of underwear-less weirdo for my first year. That was a pretty poor choice. Um, a bit more serious, um, some poor choices I made while dating Claire uh, nearly ended our relationship. That was pretty uh, serious and not really worth a giggle at all. Uh, a pretty poor choice was, was not facing up to that and being courageous enough to tell her and, and her finding out um, through other people. That was a pretty poor choice um, as it affected the way we were. Poor choices. People of God, you know, then president of my CU on the outside looking everything I should have been tall, slim, dark, <laughs> handsome, um, you know, leading my, my weekly CU, but on the inside, things not being right. Pretty poor choices um, as I sought to, to live for God. What's the, the poorest choice uh, you've ever made? We're going to look tonight at Saul making a very poor choice. And as a result, missing out on a, a blessing uh, of a, a kingly line from his own seed, a line that would, that would last. We're going to look at Saul missing out on, on the closeness of relationship with God. We're going to look at, tonight, Saul making poor choices that I think we often echo ourselves for similar reasons. Poor choices. What's the poorest choice uh, you've ever made? Just as a, a quick recap before we, we kind of move through this. Um, last week, we, we looked at Israel and how God had uh, brought them out of so much and how God had faithfully led them through many trials and challenges. Then they made this really poor choice when things started to get wrong for them, when rebels started to attack and win battles against them because of their own sin. Rather than dealing with their own sin inside, they, they asked for a king and they asked to be like other people. Hopefully if you were here, you remember that last week. We talked about that. that was a poor choice. That was the, the start of the road away from the promised land. We said that the people had forgot all that God had done, had done for them and went after other gods their invisible God who had done so many visible, powerful demonstrations of his love and care for them. They would rather go after Asherah poles and idols that they could touch and cling to visibly. That was a poor choice on their behalf. And as I said, when, when trouble came, they asked for a king, which is the poorest choice of all because they already had a king. They had the king of kings, under whom all governments and authorities on earth are under. That was their king. A, a king who would be mightier than any king that would lead them out into battle. A king who didn't even need their help to win battles. Time and time again you read of God making enemy armies fight each other as his people stood back and watched. That was their king. And that was a poor choice to, to choose to live for another king. But they forget something. that Just because you choose to have something else as your king doesn't stop God being king. He doesn't take away from his power. He doesn't need your faith to be strong. Terry Pratchett writes in his books about God's needing belief somehow to keep them kind of strong and tough. God doesn't need that. His strength doesn't depend on, on how strongly I believe in him. It's, it's in him and his strength alone. And because he's strong enough to take it and because he's a gracious God, I don't remember, he said to Samuel, okay, let them have a king. Do you remember that last week we looked at? Even though his people said, basically, we reject you and all, all you've done for God was gracious enough to say, okay, let me have a king. And so the question is, who will be king? And what I find quite funny is, I don't know how many of you have been watching X Factor, 
Um, look out for it. No, no, good, Alan, I'm glad. It's the worst programme in the world. But there is a scene tonight you can look out for where they basically hold X-Factor auditions for the new king. I'm not joking. They all present themselves before God and it's like, no, no, you just haven't got the talent. Uh, but but look, out, look out for that as well. Let's just have a, a quick look as we get into God's word together um, at who will be king, who will be king. And I need you just to flick back. We're going to stay in 1 Samuel tonight, um, but we're going to just take a, a few verses in as we do this. So if you've got a, a church Bible, on page uh, 278, uh, we read about this man called Saul, and Saul looked like a king. 1 Samuel 9, 2, um, or 1 Samuel 9 says, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Becheroth, the son of Apia, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. A head taller than any of the others. Super Israelite. This man looked like the king they would have wanted. Interestingly enough as well, Samuel liked the look of this king Saul. And I don't know if you remember from your Sunday school lessons, when Samuel went and chose David and all the brothers came before him, do you remember how he he looked at them as well? And they were rejected one after the other for being strong and big and tough. Samuel seemed to like that. He was looking for that that earthly king. And David says after Saul, no, this is David. David's the one we're going to have. But with Saul, Saul looked like a king. Taller, stronger. Surely this was the man that the Israelites would, would raise the banner behind. He would lead them in battle. What's quite interesting, though, um, and I I really wish I could preach a a separate sermon uh, on it, is that Saul's tribe was not the biggest tribe. Saul's tribe was not the most famous tribe. A Benjamite, it says, a Benjamite. Benjamites, whose whose main kind of claim to fame were that they were as tough as wolves. There's a description of them being wolf-like in battle. And so tough that there's a bit where they take on ten other tribes of Israel by themselves. Do you know why though? Because some men from their tribe did an awful crime where they took a Levite's concubine, uh, one of the priestly um, people, and, and raped her until she died. And when they were challenged about it, the Benjamite tribe didn't do anything about the men that had done it. And war broke out. It's interesting that Saul comes from this tribe that has that history. The Benjamites were wiped out so much that only 600 men remain at the end of that battle. They always were the smallest of the tribes. It's interesting how God raises people to, to say certain things, isn't it? The, the line they come from, the tribes they come from. Maybe just, just challenge them to, to rethink about the way they think about kings. Saul looked like a king. Just flick forward, flick forward with me, though, to 1 Samuel 10, verse 6. Because although Saul on the outside looked like a king, although I looked like a CU president on the outside, changes were needed on the inside. 1 Samuel 10, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Saul, in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. That's what God said as he was selected to be taken as king. As Samuel came with these amazing prophecies of this just accurate journey that Saul was going to go on, looking for donkeys for his dad, and then becoming anointed as the king of Israel. This amazing, just, just powerful demonstration of, of God working through Saul and for Saul and in Saul. But changes were needed on the inside. And that's quite a challenge, I think. Because I think in churches, 
often we are not massively open with each other about what the inside's doing right now. Because it's easier, isn't it, to protect yourself. It's easier to, to keep the, the charade going. No, I'm fine. I'm big and strong in the Lord. I know as a, as a church leader, uh, I struggle with this, and, and at the moment really struggling with, with, with preaching and teaching and, and leading, just feel, feeling wholly inadequate as I go into training. You know, I, I'm feeling that on the inside. I, I try and present this front to you that somehow it's, it's all fine. People say, how are you doing, Paddy? I'm fine. Isn't God good today? I want to challenge you guys that, that changes on the inside are key because the Christian faith is not an appearance thing. You don't just try and look good. The challenge is what's going on in the heart. And for Saul, changes were needed. And what saddens me, I think, most is that some of those changes, I think, is because Saul was a warrior. Saul was a warrior. I don't know how many of you identify with, with being a warrior. You just just not very peaceful about stuff. You, know, you, you want things to be perfect and right and, and, and you're a warrior. And, and I guess the, the, the problem with being a warrior is, is a couple of things. In the Bible, often it says, do not worry. That's your first problem with being a warrior. Uh, there's quite a lot of verses that say, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry about the things you eat, the food you wear, the clothes that you wear. I may have got that wrong. But, do not worry. Time and time again. Why? Well, because we have a God that's greater. You know, I find Saul really interesting because he was big and strong. He was bigger than every other Israelite. He'd had this amazing experience where the Spirit did come on him. He became a prophet. He danced with other prophets in this procession. He, he spoke God's word powerfully. He was there. People noticed a change in him. But still, after that, Saul remains a warrior. Just have a quick flick with me. Uh, 1 Samuel 10, uh, 21 to 26. Samuel brought... Sorry, we'll start at verse 20. Uh, listen out for the X Factor reference. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matra's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. Remember, he's already been anointed. He's already been chosen by God. Already. That, that's, that's set and sure. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So the people went back to the Lord and said, Has the man come here yet? This king they're looking for. Do you know where he was? Do you know? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> True, I'm not making it up. Saul, a warrior, anxious, hiding among the baggage. Probably tricky if you're a head taller than every other Israelite, because the bags are probably smaller than you as well. But, anxious. And if you think I'm twisting too much from that one thing, take for example that he worries about the people. If you look at the ends of the, that little passage, 1 Samuel 10, verse 27. Some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. The implication being that he's thinking about people. He's thinking about the worry things. We're going to look in a minute. His biggest problem was that his worry caused him to make this massively poor choice. To take things into his own hand rather than trusting in God. Saul remained a warrior despite the fact that he was big and strong on the outside. Saul remained a warrior despite the fact that he had experienced something of God transforming him. Saul was a warrior despite the fact that Samuel had told him he was going to be the king that was going to lead his people. I don't know about you, if you're a Christian here this evening and you are a warrior, 
And you know that is your character and you can't help it and you worry. And you kind of have told yourself, well, worry's not bad. It means I'm caring about things you know, deeply. I'm, 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 I'm a very caring person. If you're a worrier, my challenge to you is that there is an aspect of being a worrier which is about keeping control of yourself. About saying, well, I worry when things are outside my control, so I'm going to keep everything in my control. And the problem with that is that if everything is kept in your control, how are you going to experience God blowing away the borders and destroying your fears and showing you that whatever comes or happens or faces, whichever battle you're going to face, how are you ever going to see him surprising you and stretching you in faith? Because Saul was a warrior. And that was at the heart of what he's about to do when Saul chooses poorly. I'm a warrior, I bite my nails. Um, I bite my nails very much. I also am sick every time I preach. You may not know that about me. Uh, feel free to pray for me next time I preach because I can't help it. I, I worry. And I really wish I didn't. I really wish I trusted more in, in God's power to speak. You know, I go home and Claire says, how was it? I say, awful. It was the worst sermon ever preached at Long Crenda Baptist Church. I was too long. I was too dull. I was waffling. And she says, oh, it can't have been that bad. But then you know that she kind of thinks, oh, okay. It was, I'm a worrier. And I deeply wish I had freedom from it. I deeply wish I had freedom from it. Because if these sermons are all about enjoying life in God's presence in the promised land, of being a believer, of having God as our king, surely that's one way we can miss out on the blessing. Because I love preaching. I don't know if you love me preaching, but I love preaching. (laughs) But you see, you may be thinking, well, how is a history lesson going to help me? As Christians tonight, you are part of God's holy nation a chosen people, set apart and dearly loved. But I wonder how many of you feel that, that you are set apart and dearly loved. I wonder how many of you feel that deeply within, not just on the outside, not just by the people in church, but deeply, deeply loved. Because the problem with worry is that worry steals that joy from you. The problem with worry is it makes you an anxious kind of person that infects others with worry, because believe me, it's quite hard being with someone who is a worrier. Because it, it kind of gets at you as well. You start thinking, I wasn't worried, but maybe I should be. But <laughs> that's, that's the way it tends to work for me. Saul was a worrier. And sadly, sadly, we get to the, the key bit this evening, which is that Saul chooses poorly. One more bit from 1 Samuel 10, just before we skip on. 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, is the first instruction, the very first instruction made to Saul as king. The very first instruction, and even as a boy who often forgets directions the minute you tell me, I'm thinking your first instruction as king is something that you listen to very deeply and very strongly. 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. Samuel says to Saul, go ahead of me down to Gilgal, which is near a battle site. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. I'll read that one more time because you need to get this into your head. This is really important. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, where the Philistines were. I will surely come down to you. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. The very first instruction. If you found that all hard to remember, a little cheesy thing is 1 Samuel 10.8 says wait. 1 Samuel 10.8 says wait. Feel free to repeat that back to me if you like. No. 
But it it helps. If you get home and you remember that, you might help to remember the fact that maybe God was telling Saul, a warrior, do nothing. Wait for me. Because warriors are good at getting going and warriors are good about doing things themselves. Warriors are good about just getting involved and doing things so it's all fine. It's interesting, isn't it, that God says to Saul, wait. Samuel says, wait for me. I'll do the offerings. Let's go and have a look at what Samuel did wrong. Uh, Saul did wrong, sorry, as we look ahead. Ozzy read it beautifully. We're not going to read through it all together. Saul chooses poorly. Do you remember what happened? He waits seven days. You can imagine him as a warrior counting down the days. Samuel said seven. Samuel said seven. Okay, Monday, Tuesday. I don't know if they called them Monday, Tuesday. Probably not. He waited and waited until seven days were up. In his mind, anyway. And he said to the people, bring me the offerings. Bring me the sacrifices. I will do it. This is before a battle. Basically, they're they're asking God's favour in battle. Remember, this is a people that have lost quite a few battles recently because their hearts weren't pure with God. He says, bring me the offerings. Bring me the sacrifices. I'll do it. And isn't this always the way? Boys, if you've been watching kind of dodgy programmes, I'm telling you, your mum walks in at just the only bit in the programme where there's something naughty going on. If you're stealing food from the cupboard... I'm going to make it really sexist, girls. You know, isn't it always the case that someone walks in on you just when you've done it? Saul, just after he sacrifices the offerings for battle, thinking Samuel's not coming, Samuel arrives. Samuel arrives. And you may think to yourself, as I did as I read this this week, it's not so bad. He's made offerings to God. He's made sacrifices. He's done what needed to be done. As a king, he's showing decisive leadership. He's, he's leading the way. He's you know, making decisions, leading his people. That's not so bad, surely. But this is a big problem. And did you know that this one thing is enough for Saul to be told, that although his reign would be quite long, as we read, 42 years, that the kingly line would be taken from him and given to David. This one thing. And before you say to me, oh, that's really harsh, That's really mean of God. I would remind you that King David was guilty of murder and adultery, and yet God still called him man after his own heart. I would remind you that that we read again and again in Psalms that David wasn't perfect. There's obviously something deeper going on. And I want to try and challenge you just really briefly as we look at this. What's, What's going on? So remember, God's king. You've got the prophet Samuel. You've got the earthly king Saul. Problem number one, 1 Samuel 13, if you've got this together, is that Saul shows a complete disregard for God's word. We're talking in this series about how can you can enjoy presence and, and a life lived in God's kind of land, in God's kind of kingdom. My first challenge to you is, if you ignore God's word, if you go against his rules, if you break his commands, as I discovered to my horror and shame when I messed around behind Claire's back, things do not feel good. Sin promises much, but delivers little in the long term. If you disregard God's word, there are problems. More than that, because the Bible is very clear that sin isn't just against other people, it's against God too. There are eternal consequences for sin. If you show a disregard of God's word and his challenge to live for God, that you were made for God, for his pleasure, for the purpose of worshipping him and enjoying him, that's, that's what we talk about, worshipping and enjoying God. My challenge to you, is that that you miss out. My challenge to you is that for me, and this is where I'm going to sound very judgmental, I think that's a poor choice. 
Not because I'm saying to you that's a poor choice, but because I love living in God's presence. I love living in God's light and love. I love following him every day. The times where I do it well, the times where I do it badly, I love it. In the same sense that I would recommend a holiday to the Maldives because I've been there, I want to recommend the Christian life to you massively. That's why I think you're choosing poorly. Why choose Minehead, which has a few attractions but ultimately is pretty dingy, when you can go to Maldives? That's what God promises, a, a life which isn't free of pain or, or suffering, but, but a life of purpose and, and hope. For Saul, the promises were amazing. You'll be a king from the smallest tribe, a tribe with history, lifted up. You'll be king. You'll be transformed as a person, the Holy Spirit working within you to transform you into a person that is beyond your wildest dreams. But Saul disregards God's words. He makes the offering himself. Saul also shows a disregard for his own sin. We can read this, um, if you can read this with me together. 1 Samuel 13, uh, 10 to 12. Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. The word is to bless. It's the first time of three actually that Saul uses a religious blessing to try and hide something he's done. What have you done, asked Samuel. And I've got a question for you to discuss with your, your partners just for a couple of minutes. This is Saul's response. What have you done? When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Okay, quick question for you, just to get you back on track. Okay. Samuel asked him, what have you done? Is Saul's answer a good answer? Okay, does that make sense? Samuel says, what have you done? Is Saul's answer a good answer? And don't just go, no, that's obviously what you're trying to get me to say. Discuss why, if you think it's no, maybe it's yes. So Samuel says, what have you done, Saul? Saul says in those two little verses, I thought, um, when I saw the men were scattering, that you did not come at the set time, that the Philistines were assembling, a big mash, blah, 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 blah. Have a little chat for a couple of minutes, I promise, not for long. Is that a good answer? Why? Why not? Go, that'd be cool. We're going to raise your hand. If you think it is a good answer, raise your hand. Be brave. If you think it is a good answer, raise your hand. Be brave. Don't be, don't be shy. Okay, good. Um, Ray, Ray um, I'll, I'll repeat it. It's okay. Why do you think it's a good answer, mate? Because he was honest. He was honest? Okay. Okay. Anyone think it's not a good answer? Raise your hand now. We've got honesty. Did, did you actually... <laughs> I'm not going to vote just in case I'm wrong. I want the outside appearance to look perfect. I want everyone to think that I know and know all the answers. I don't want to look wrong in church. That's the whole point of what we're talking about. Who thinks it's a bad answer? Thank you at the front. At the front. Uh, let me think. Can I ask you guys? I know you probably hate it. Why is it a bad answer? We've said it was honest. Yeah, I, I love this. I, I love this. This is a brilliant example of the classic, I'm sorry but. Do you know that, that one? Zach's brilliant at this. Zach, did you do it? Yes, but. 
He can't say what he did then. He just says, but. I think he likes saying but a lot. But, the yes but, shift the blame straight away. Can you see that? Who does Saul blame? And why is this a serious problem? Well, Saul shows a complete disregard for the seriousness of his own sin. Just, just, just look at how many people he blames. If this was X Factor for, for blame, he would be the total like icon. Um, 1 Samuel 13, 8 to 9. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter, so he's done it. Okay. A bit later on, Saul, Samuel says, what have you done? Verse 11, Saul replied, Well, I saw that the men were scattering. It's their fault, number one. That you did not come at the set time. It's your fault, number two. That the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. It's their fault, number three. By the way, they're not assembling, they're just camping at the moment, getting ready to battle. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. Kind of blaming himself, but not properly. Bit of an excuse for me. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering with no sense of guilt or shame about it. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? In two small verses, five reasons, apart from the fact I've made a mistake, I'm deeply sorry. And that's the problem with Saul. That's why Saul was not the king that he should have been. That's the reason why I'm challenging you deeply tonight. If you are a Christian on the outside, but on the inside you have something deeply wrong. If you're a warrior, which is that you can't give God control on the inside and you keep people on the outside, my challenge is to you that something is deeply wrong because Saul disregards his own sin because he shows an absence of a godly heart. Christians talk a lot about sin, not to scare you away from God, but to make you run towards him. That's what we're trying to do. We don't do it to make you feel bad. We do it to try and help you feel forgiven. That's what Christianity is about. If Saul had come to Samuel and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm new at this. <laughs> if he, I don't know if he'd come and said that. It's my first day. Like, I don't know. What we know about David is that when Nathan the prophet challenged David about his adultery, we'll look at David later, David was broken. It took a story and a challenge to get him there, but he was broken and he was forgiven. Saul shows an absence of a godly heart. We know this to be true because Samuel says to him this, this, this shocking indictment. This is the reason why he's not king. 1 Samuel 13, 13 to 14. You have acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. This is the key bit. Listen. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That's the challenge. Saul chose very poorly. Not just in what he did, but in his response to God as well. Shows the absence, absence of a godly heart. Have any of you ever made a claim on uh, insurance? Have you ever made a claim on insurance? Because this is the culture that we live in. This, this blaming others for stuff is the culture we live in. For example, um, I'll read some of these insurance claims. These are true. Um, going to work at 7am this morning, I drove out of my drive straight into a bus. The bus was five minutes early. That, that is what someone wrote down on an insurance claim form. It wasn't my fault the bus was early. Where there's blame, there's a claim. I started to slow down, but the traffic was more stationary than I thought. I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight. True. People writing this down. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. Is a worrying one. To be honest, I don't think he means punched. I think he means the pedestrian hit the car while he was driving. In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. 
Where there's blame, there's a claim. I was driving along the motorway when the police pulled me over onto the hard shoulder. Unfortunately, I was in the middle lane and there was another car in the way. (laughs) This is infectious, though. This blaming other people for stuff is an infectious way to live. Not dealing with your own issues, but blaming others. Keeping it at a distance is the, the, the culture we live in. It's the way our kids are brought up. It wasn't my fault, he started it. Where there's blame, there's a claim. God has a claim over you. Sin has a claim over you. The challenge is, who are you going to go to? If I was being really cheated at this point, I'd say, what's your insurance policy? Is it up to date? Is it valid? That's my challenge, because so often we, we blame others. The reason I'm like this is because of my past. Someone else did this to me. It's not my fault that I'm like this. You know, you don't understand the trouble I've been, been through. You don't understand. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I find it hard with faith, but you don't understand, because you know, this, this church wasn't, wasn't quite what I was looking for. The challenge about God is that he wants an honest heart-to-heart relationship. That's the challenge. That's why Saul chose poorly. And so to finish, three very clear applications I want to bring you tonight. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. Um, How do you miss out on a blessing of living for God? Here are three really simple things, I think. Doing the right things, but with the wrong heart, I think is a challenge from Saul. Saul made the offerings, he made the sacrifices. But he did it with the wrong heart. It was a heart full of worry, full of, I want to control things myself. He didn't seek to let God lead him and and take him on as a king. He'd been transformed partially. As a Christian, he'd experienced the joy of being filled with the Spirit, of prophesying. But then he fought against it. And that's that's a real tragedy, I think. Doing the right things with the wrong heart. If you're here tonight and you know that you are a Christian, basically, through behaviour only, that something's not being transformed in the heart, my challenge to you is go to God direct. Do it tonight. And say, create in me a new heart, Father God. Create in me a new heart. A heart that is after your own. Trust is the outward working of internal faith. Faith is not a private thing. Faith is not a private thing. We often hear that say, don't we? Well, I have faith, but it's a private thing. Faith is to be expressed joyfully, gladly, loudly and boldly and lived out every day when you face every challenge, when you face every stress. Who are you going to put in charge? Yourself, because you're a warrior, or the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the person who can create the world in a single word? Who do you want to put in charge? Trust is the outward working of internal faith. Saul's big problem was his heart was not after God's own heart. He trusted himself. In one sense, he put another God in God's place. Lastly, blaming others for a sin is a dangerous game. We've seen that with Saul, haven't we? It wasn't me. You were late. They were running. The Philistines were approaching. I was scared. Guys, as I said to you before, we don't talk to you about sin because we want you to feel bad. We tell you to do it to get forgiven. To come to God and say, God, I've messed up. I'm sorry. I blame myself. You take that bold step. It's quite refreshing, trust me. When I went to Claire, when I'd made that mistake, and she'd found out, not because I'd been courageous and told her, she found out. The relief came when she said, you know what, it's hard but I forgive you. That was the joy of, of, of the Christian message lived out in her life. Yeah, and and that's, that's challenged me and transformed me as well. Blaming others for sin is a dangerous game. Because the problem is if you don't deal with sin, it sticks. It doesn't go away. If I blame someone else, it doesn't get transferred to their account. That's not how it works. And what I love about God is that God says, you know what, Give me your sin. Don't try and blame someone else. And I'll put it on my boy. I went across to die for you. I'll put it on him. And by his stripes you'll be healed. Creating me a fresh heart. I pray daily to God.
because my heart is cold and hard and like a stone. But God gives a, a heart of flesh and a heart that, that beats in you for him and, and I challenge you and encourage you to the same. Amen.